welcome to Wealth Chat presented by CGI. My name is Labna Bibi. I lead research for our global wealth and capital markets practice, and I'm your host. This was a very special episode. I had a chat with Julie Green and Alain Egri from Psionic. Julie and Alain are both located in the UK and are both wealth management experts for that market. We spoke about trends affecting the UK market, the digitization journey firms are on, and how blockchain and gamification can improve firm offerings and create a better client experience. It was a very insightful conversation, and I would like to give a big thank you to Jilly and Alon for chatting with me. Welcome, Alon, Jilly. Very happy to have you both here. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this chat for weeks since we said that we were going to do it. So I'm glad that we're finally getting to do it. Um, before we dive into some of the really exciting topics that we have, um, I would like to give you each uh, a moment to introduce yourselves. Um, Julie, we can start with you. Sure. Thank you, uh, Lubna. Um, well, Al and I are both from a company called Psionic, which is a management consulting firm. We are global, around 300 people, and we are specialists in financial services. Um, Al and I both belong to the wealth management and private banking um, practice, and I run that practice across three locations, which is UK, Switzerland, and Jersey. Uh, Jersey in the UK, as you probably know, are very closely related, so uh, brought Al along to give the offshore view of, of where we're at, but pretty similar markets. Jilly, yeah, quite right. Took the um, the words out of my mouth. So with regards to wh- where I cover and um, some of the exposure here. So I'm a director in, my name's Alan Egre. I'm a director in the wealth management practice and of course covering that offshore market specifically in Jersey. So uh, a lot of our background is spanning operations, technology and, and change. So we'll be able to bring some of that experience to the conversation. That all sounds great. And I you know, we'll, we'll get to dive into all of that. So it'll be a really uh, insightful and informative conversation. So y- you both specialize in the UK market. So let's start there. What are some of the main trends that are present in the UK market? And we can start with you, Jilly. Sure. I think when, when you look at the UK market, the first thing to really consider actually is that it is very fragmented. There are hundreds of different firms that are providing some sort of wealth management services. So we'll talk about the common themes because some of them have you know, varying nuances on those. Um, clearly, the first one is digital. And I think the, the what we've been through with the pandemic is quite significant because with digital, it has meant that where we were before, we were pretty behind, I think, in terms of other markets. Um, but with COVID, everything has basically moved from a nice to have to a hygiene factor. And what I mean by that is, you know, online access to information about your accounts and your wealth. Uh, There is certainly uh, a bit of pressure to try and bring that together. So there's a few firms that have implemented some open banking links so that you can link to your uh, banking accounts and have it reported to you all together. Um, And we have seen an interesting development around uh, what started out as robo-advice, but has moved more to a hybrid offering. And I think you look at what's happened with robo-advice, there's a number of firms that have actually pulled out of it. Um, 
We have uh, some good digital platforms, but they tend to be around uh, the wrappers, the tax wrappers that are specific to the UK. Um, and they tend to be either on an execution basis, direct client, or they tend to be through an advisor. So if I've got an advisor working with me, then that advisor may well be managing my assets on a platform. Um, but the robo-advice actually digitalizing the advice process has not really happened well over here. And I think that has moved to more of a uh, people looking at a simplified product where they can digitalize it. But even then, we are now skipping over some of the process that maybe other countries have gone through. And we're moving more to what I would call a, a true hybrid offering. And you'll find some firms think hybrid is, oh, let's just offer the client multiple ways of contacting us. But actually, the real trick with hybrid is to make it a digital first process. And what I mean by that is you start the process going online um, and if there's a, a problem, there's an option to break out into either a chat or a video link at the time you're in it without losing being in that process. It isn't, oh, I've got to go and pick up the phone now and break it. It's still staying in the process and helping someone through the process and staying online, which is actually way more efficient. And it means that people then become more used to being online and carrying on online rather than always having to break out of it. Al, have you got anything to add on what I've what I've just said? No, it really does resonate. There's, there's genuinely a couple of other trends that we know sort of flow through that, you know, we're seeing quite a lot of challenge with, with op operational resilience. Um, obviously, um, ESG is also a really kind of key factor for a lot of clients across the market and also locally here in the offshore market. And and one of the other, you know, topics as well is a very much a growing fintech landscape as well, right? Where um, a lot of solutions um, have become very technical, solving a lot of key use cases for, for clients and across the industry. That was great and a lot to unpack. Um, so I think I want to start with by diving a bit more into the hybrid offering that you mentioned, Jilly. Um, to your point, I feel that most firms and consumers as well feel hybrid means that I have multiple options, right? I can go in person, it could be over the phone, it could be web. Um, but this idea that hybrid means that you will stay, stay digital, but you'll just have different options for help, for assistance, um, I, I think is really interesting. And it's definitely about helping people come up with the right process and then helping them adapt. So around that adoption portion, how do you, um, I suppose, help your advisors adapt to this type of hybrid, your clients, consumers? Sure. I mean, it, of, of course, you need the tools. And I think you look at the history of the UK, it's an old business. So we've got hundreds of clients that are on old technology. And you have to look at how you can make that happen in even with that old technology. So you need to make sure that people are looking very carefully at improving interfacing and where data is stored and having a really good data strategy. Even if you've got old technology, a good data strategy can really help. Um, from the hybrid perspective, I think we, we have seen some firms go multi-channel, but in the pro in 
in the context of separating out product type. So we're we in the UK we have a really short a, a quite a, a shortage of advice. And yet, when you look at the the type of advice, advice that people need, when they're at a lower level of wealth, it's quite formulaic. So we're seeing a huge number of advisors launching what I would call a simplified advice proposition, where a lot of them are doing it by phone initially, but this is going to go to digital. Um, and in doing that, it's about making sure you've got the tools that allow you to support the digital process and the people still have to support it. So we've seen a lot of banks go to what I would call a chatbot, where it's an automated response. And I can guarantee you anything I'm ever doing with banking where I go into the chat, they'll usually say, oh, you're going to have to phone this number. <laughs> and that's not what it is about. It is absolutely about having someone behind the chat. So when you break out, it goes to somebody in a call center or in a group of people who are managing that client service, they see a chat come through and they actually respond to it from a position of as much knowledge as you can have. Of course, there will be a point where you might need to break out to an advisor, but the best option for that would then be it breaks out to an advisor who immediately comes online on video in a shared experience process so they can see exactly what you're doing on the screen. And it's not like share your screen with me on Zoom. It's an integrated process. So in, in order to do that, clearly you've got to have the tools. These tools are all available. They are all absolutely available. The challenge we have actually is designing the user experience, not the tools. The tools are pretty you know, easy to, to implement. And there are a lot of products out there where they're already selling those to advisors with that shared experience of, of the technology. So it is about really designing your process and your product to support that and having your people trained to be able to respond as a proper chat, not a chat bot is my personal view. <laughs> no, I completely agree with you, Alain. Did you have any thoughts? Uh, it's it's really as be beautifully articulated, actually, Jilly, and and certainly the the small things when considering digitalization. The small bit that I would add is that I think when when institutions are looking at their their, their digital roadmap, the 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 very much you can see it as an iteration on on their kind of current processes and their technology as to potentially completely disrupting their their, their current ways of working. So evolving that you know that technology that they have for you know for talking to clients or interacting with clients for um you know and bringing that bringing that to bear so but yeah quite right Julie, beautifully articulated i think what's also interesting and this is you know owl's market really is that i've been talking about simple products as soon as you get to the channel islands market the offshore market actually the average level of wealth of an individual client is higher. They've got specific requirements. You know, Jersey has got some of the most sophisticated trust law in the world. They go there so that they can use it. They go there so they can have 
some benefits, some tax benefits if they're not resident in the UK. Um, so it's a slightly different type of client that is just a little bit more complicated. And I think one of the good examples of technology and trends that we're seeing is the focus on onboarding technology and trying to automate that, trying to digitalize that. And that's where you know you get into what's the possibility and how you know the onboarding process in in jersey is usually quite complicated isn't it very much so it's a uh the the there are some tools which we're seeing coming out in the market that that are trying to address that that complexity that comes with let's say you know lubna bb is lubna bb limited and of course lubna bb is a beneficiary of a particular trust and lubna bb is a a, a director of a, another a different company and 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 the complexity of looking through to all of that and making it a seamless experience so that you only do it once is is very much an industry challenge which has quite a lot of focus um and and something that um you know certainly the offshore jurisdictions are, are looking to solve and um yeah indeed that leads us on to um also some some things about data and are we ever going to be in a position where we have collaboration across the industry? We all know that when you open a bank account, you have to show your passport, you have to show proof of address and so on and so forth. Some of the challenger banks are actually sitting on their on the backs of some of the more established banks and saying, well, if you've got an account at Barclays, you must be okay. And they're building propositions off somebody else's data, essentially. But we still have a challenge even within the firms that we deal with where they're looking at onboarding a client and they do that KYC process two or three times for every different account they open. We as an industry have to get away from that. And when we when we talk about things like AI and learning and data, there has to be some move at some point of the industry to start sharing. And if that's sharing around the ease of onboarding clients, because there's a centralized identity, you know, wouldn't it be lovely if we had centralized identity checks like we do with, you know, car tax these days, you don't have to have a disc on your car anymore. Um, If we had some sort of centralized identity checks, it means you're not sending your data here, there and everywhere. It's safer. It's got to be able to reduce some fraud and identity theft. Blockchain must lend itself to some of this stuff simply because it's a safe way to store unlock, send data. And, and that, I think, is is potentially quite exciting. These tools are there. We're just not using them yet. <laughs> this, you're quite right. That shared KYC, KYC utility is, is really very much a, would be a holy grail, and it will take the collaboration of all of the bodies across government, across, you know, all of the all of the other financial institutions and ultimately bring that trust. It's... Uh, it's a topic that would be good to be addressed. No, I completely agree with everything that both of you have said. Um, I think that the issue with onboarding is something that's global. It's not just in the UK or North America. It seems to be a problem that every firm um, has in every country. And so that, to me, sounds like a problem that needs to be addressed. And I feel that firms are trying to address it. Um, I can say that in North America, 
I believe one of the issues is that we have a lot of legacy infrastructure. And so when they introduce new technologies to digitize onboarding, for instance, it still relies on a lot of manual processes. And that's sort of where the hindrance is and that's where the issues are created. And to your point, Julie, I think blockchain could be an amazing thing for this, right? Uh, with blockchain, you can essentially store data and then just pass that key around and have everyone have secure access to it. So I want to dive a bit more into blockchain. It is one of my favorite topics. Um, I think it's an industry that was, you know, it has a, it had a bit of stigma attached to it for a while, but that seems to be going away now just because of how much use there is for it, what an amazing technology it is. And the fact that really anyone in any industry can employ it. So when it comes to blockchain, what have the two of you seen within the market in the UK, Europe in general, or just around the world? So blockchain could be very much be a podcast in its own right. I'm, I've no doubt. But what we've seen is that um, it's, it's certainly been the subject of quite significant research and development, um, you know, across a lot of large and influential firms, you know, across Europe and the UK. Um, ultimately, you know, that looking at what they can sort of do with, with some of the back office functions, but also importantly, the point that I'd probably pull out as well for within the UK is that for a lot of private banks and wealth managers, it's still not accepted as a robust source of wealth by many of the top tier firms. So whilst the solution is something that, that, that will be also driven quite highly by regulation, which will also bring a lot of competition for you know, in this in the space, digital assets themselves, um, you know, very much will need to be will will need to be regulated, and that regulation, uh, you know, I certainly my suspicion is that regulation itself will will bring a market in its own as it becomes an asset class in its own right, right? So we're seeing we're seeing this in Switzerland specifically. I'm not sure, Julie, if, if there's anything more that you'd add. Well, I think it's fair to say what you you mentioned, Al. There has been significant research, and where we've seen a lot of that has been in the the big uh, trust and global custodian banks. Um, so they've come from the states, and they've invested quite a lot of money looking at it. Um, interestingly, I went to a conference the other day, and there was someone there talking about blockchain and their technology and how they were promoting using it. And he asked for a show of hands in the room, which was full of wealth managers, of who is using blockchain today, and not a single hand went up. So it kind of <laughs> sets the scene. Now, Al obviously was mentioning cryptocurrency, and there's certainly some develops around developments around cryptocurrencies, which includes the first bank that has been regulated to provide custody for it. And of course, that is built on blockchain. But what the other element of this, which I found really interesting the other day was, is this firm was trying to position itself with a USP of being environmentally the best blockchain user and uh, comparing uh, sending documents via, uh, well, paper and email being uh, 60,000, 60 times less impact on the environment or something and their blockchain 
being 60 times less than sending an email PDF or, you know, you get the gist. But what they were also saying is because of the way that they were implementing blockchain, it was very different in terms of its reliance on servers and energy and everything else. And so this is all, you know, we are moving to a world with last week, we're moving to a world where we really, really do have to save the planet. And I think this is going to, it's a really good example of everything that is going to be happening is going to be how is, how am I impacting the environment going forward? And if buying blockchain is better than sending an email and more secure than sending an email, why wouldn't you? So I think we're in a world now where things are going to just start moving faster Blockchain was definitely a solution looking for a problem. We now have a problem and lots of ways to solve it, and blockchain is one of those. So, you know, I'm I'm really quite excited to see what is going to happen, but I'll put my hand up and say in the UK wealth management business, nobody has a clue about blockchain just yet. It's going to be a point for the yeah proof of proof of stake versus proof of work there obviously which has the most impact on the environment um, and it's obviously going to be a really important topic I'm sure for the next generation of course as the the intergenerational wealth transfer you know sort of occurs. Oh, I completely agree with again with both of you and I believe that ESG has become a very big factor. Um, and another big factor has, is the intergenerational wealth transfer, and we'll touch on both of those. But with blockchain, we've all seen that one of the issues that some of the cri large cryptos were having, specifically Bitcoin, was their environmental footprint, right? And all those uh, farms that, that were, you know, going on in various parts of the world and just how much they were contributing to carbon uh, emissions, and so now we have cryptos that are, you know, more ESG friendly. They're all about the environment and, you know, if anything, having a, a negative output and they're all working very hard towards it. And I feel that this is an area that, you know, will definitely continue to evolve. I find that there's a lot of potential in the space um, and it, particularly when it comes to ESG and uh, tracking, because that's a very important aspect of ESG is we've seen, you know, countless stories about a fund or a firm claiming to be very ESG and very environmentally friendly. And then it turns out they're actually not that friendly. You know, there were a lot of cases of greenwashing to the point the regulators in the U.S. had to get involved. Um, and I'm sure you two have stories similar to this in the U.K. as well. So when we speak about ESG and what's happened with COP26, what are some of the ESG trends that are occurring in the UK? So I think it, it's fair to say we are accelerating on this and actually COP26 is making people think about it even more. But we also have regulation coming in, which is driving behaviours. Um, so there's there's different levels. One level is just a hygiene factor. You need to know what you're in. Um, another level is actually essentially looking at trying to be more environmentally friendly. And then the third level is actually offering products that just do that. And uh, wealth managers are going to have to actually ask their customers what they want right at the outset of a relationship. So it does draw, I mean, as soon as somebody says, oh, I want to be completely green, it drives a whole different process. And, and once you've asked them, you then need to satisfy that requirement. So um, 
I think in both Europe and the UK, because obviously in leaving Europe, we've got now got a slightly different classification for ESG. It is absolutely driving behaviours. And I have seen firms that are uh, basically tracking every single portfolio and giving it a score, both from a fund perspective, a model perspective, and also an individual bespoke portfolio from a client perspective. And then there are others that are really just not quite there yet. I think what our biggest challenge is, and this is to your point, BB, with the greenwashing, is data. And the data is just, you know, there's lots of firms that are partnering with certain data providers, but the data is still in a very junior process in terms of its sophistication. And somebody was just telling me today that they'd looked at a portfolio and there were some social uh, things that were against a particular company and said it wasn't in a good state. So they took it out of their portfolio. Um, but when they actually looked into it themselves, instead of relying on their data provider, they actually found that the issue that was being flagged was ages ago, it's all been fixed, it's all absolutely gone the other way for that particular company. So they put it back in. But that was about the data not being timely or not being up to date about that particular company. So where do you draw the lines? Where do you begin and end with this? In in the data providers, you're going to end up with the experts still going and looking under the bonnet of every company to really be sure. So I think we've got a way to go in the industry about what information is available and what it actually means. Al? Couldn't agree more. It's it, the the data is the challenge. Honestly, so we went through. Actually, one of the things we've done recently is support actually the one of the industry bodies in Jersey sort of go through an application process for um, sustainability and doing a stock take on on the offshore islands and how you know being able to sort of source that data and sourcing that data in a reliable and consistent manner was was very much the major major challenge, right? And um, and it's one that um, I think you know that that full look through from you know to be able to tell whether a fund or an asset you know is truly green and then tracking its contribution you know to, to that objective is key. And looking at the an interesting stat someone shared with me actually recently as well is Hargreaves Lansdowne recently did a sort of study on the sort of the top five based on the data that's available, the top five green companies, um, ESG rated companies. And one thing that might raise an eyebrow or two is that British American tobacco is number three <laughs> and Glencore mining company is actually number four. But that's because, you know, based on the data that's ultimately being provided. And the final bit that I'd probably <laughs> like to draw out here as well is, is Lebanon, when you look at that COP26 you know, website or ultimately their goals. It states, says this, right? To achieve our climate goals, every company, every financial firm, every bank, insurer and investor will will need to change. So the mechanism and speed for me at which that can occur whilst also retaining financial profitability is going to be quite an interesting challenge for the industry and, and also for that next gen. I think on a final point around um, ESG, is that firms are going to have to live this, really live it, and it's got to start from the top. So it isn't just about what the company is doing, what they're investing in, what they are you know, delivering. It's also about how their board behave and what, what the culture is from the top. I think to really get this 
moving across the world, that has to be that has to become a hygiene factor for boards. Every board should be asking themselves, what are we doing from an environmental and social and governance perspective? And we talk a lot about the environment. We talk a lot less about social and we hardly talk about the governance at all. So that, for me, is is an area where we've still got lots of steps to take. And, you know, the data has got to, has got to catch up for us to be able to even judge because it's it's not transparent. Definitely agree with everything that you both have said. And I think to the data point, um, and this could lead us into, you know, talks about AI and ML as well. Um, but the issue that we're seeing, at least in North America, is that we have firms that have client data. They're very rich on it, particularly the large banks, because they have multiple channels. So they have everything from banking to full service wealth management. And so they're very rich in data. They want to use it. But everyone seems to be after, you know, like that shiny thing at the end, right? Like they, they just want that really cool insight. They want something new. They want something innovative. And um, speaking with some of the data analysts at CGI, what I've learned is that the issue seems to be that no one is really working on the foundational layers to have that proper data, right? To ensure that they're filtering it out appropriately, to ensure that they're collecting it appropriately, appropriately putting it into the correct buckets. Um, and so it's sort of a garbage in, garbage out type of scenario at that point, because, well, on the one hand, yes, there's all this amazing data that they can leverage. But on the other hand, they're not, they don't have the proper infrastructure to leverage it. And they, there's some hesitancy towards building that infrastructure. And what are the two of you seeing um, in the UK market when it comes to data and having these uh, appropriate layers to, you know, really get a very correct and, you know, more holistic and, you know, accurate, accurate picture, essentially. Yeah. Al, do you want to go first on this one? Short time. Jilly, for me, it relates back. Yeah, absolutely. It relates back to the point that I think you mentioned uh, a touch earlier in the conversation as well, is that the data, data is something which very much needs to be shared and owned collectively. So we're seeing, we're seeing companies that, um, that are trying to provide solutions across, uh, I suppose, across the industry to, to bring data out of actual institutions where they're quite siloed and put them out in things like the cloud, you know, when they can put in a layer where they can be accessed and mined by, you know, sort of other, ultimately other companies. But of course, the challenge that comes with that is, is data, you know, data consistency and data strategy, as you, as you said there. And obviously, importantly, at the end of it, trust, which perhaps links also the, you know, the sort of the blockchain conversation as well, um, because naturally, you know, so certainly when it comes to client level data, some people are not quite ready to share that yet across sort of institutions based on whether it may or may not be competitive. But, you know, that would be my sort of first first thoughts on the topic. I think what's also, you're absolutely right, Al, about that personal willingness to share data. Now, I think we all do that anyway. Even me, who tried very hard to tick every box about not sharing, not doing this, not being, you know, but ultimately, I've, I've started using my credit card online and I'm doing this, that, and the other. And under COVID particularly, how on earth are you ever going to get away from sharing your personal data? 
And I think the next generation are way less worried about it. You know, they're all on social media. I mean, I am too, but only a little bit. And I think as soon as you get out there with Facebook and everything else, your life is public. That's absolutely it. And you can, no matter what anyone says about deleting your account and everything else, it's there. It's not, you know, that stuff is kept forever. So should we be so precious about sharing our data because it is about how firms can give us a better experience through doing that um, and sometimes not not even personal data it's just data and it's data about behaviors and preferences that if you could put it all together firms could develop much better products firms could understand you know nuances of why people choose this over that and I'm talking about investments as well Uh, I just think we are a very long way from sharing the fragmented market in the UK makes that even more difficult and I'm talking about in wealth management banks and a lot less fragmented than wealth management Um, but I I also think that it's, it's probably quite difficult for firms to share data because of that ageing infrastructure that Lubna mentioned is the same over here. Um, and when I always look at innovation and technology in particular, it relies on... It relies on the idea and the innovation, but it also relies on the adoption. And we've got quite a few barriers to adoption on many fronts, whether it's data, whether it's actual use of technology. What is hugely frightening to me, because I'm (laughs) old-ish, is the technology is so far advanced. They can send a neobot to take your temperature or do a blood test or even get into your veins and grasp specific cancer cells that technology is all already available the cancer cell bit is in test and it tends to grab other cells as well at the moment but this is amazing stuff this could relieve us of the need for humans at all maybe one day who knows but it's that adoption level of people being willing to do it that we have as the lowest common denominator which is the barrier and prevention to some of this stuff so uh, when I just think back even 10 years when I had wealth managers telling me that they didn't need to send reports via email and in fact somebody bought a special printer because no other printer would print on paper as thick as they wanted to send to their clients I mean my god haven't we come a long way from that and that isn't that long ago so you know, let's not beat ourselves up too much. We have come a long way, but we are the barrier. Human beings' adoption rates are the barrier, which is why, actually, as we get to the next generation of people who are running these companies and doing these things, that will be when we make the most progress. When I went to school, we didn't even study technology. Technology was green screen. There was no such thing as a mobile phone. God, I'm showing my age, but you know what I mean. It's it's it, it. We've come a long way, but we could have been. It's it's the innovation has gone exponential, but we haven't. Sorry, that's my rant and rave. <laughs> uh, no, that was great. Um, I I enjoyed the rant, um, as you call it. But I thought it was very informative, right? And it's about 
the fact that we are evolving, we continue to, there's amazing technology out there, um, you know, about the, your example about the cancer cells. Like I was speaking about Neuralink with someone this morning about, you know, Elon's Musk. Musk's dream to have a human brain in a robot, essentially. Um, and there's, you know, very innovative ideas um, and concepts that are out there and folks that are willing to pursue them, right? Individuals such as Elon Musk and uh, other, you know, visionaries uh, that are scattered across the globe. And it, it's all very fascinating. Um, and so, but we were talking about digital. And so I want to sort of dive into that a bit. I feel that with COVID, um, something that, you know, we are still sort of uh, in the midst of, but have gone through the worst, uh, hopefully, it really accelerated digitization in the sense that firms before they had priorities and they had their, uh, you know, list of tasks that needed to be done. And you may have had things like digital onboarding, for instance, that was on that list, but it was pushed further down because they had some other priorities, uh, usually regulation that's at the very forefront because that's um, an obligation that they have to meet. And then COVID happens, we're all under lockdown, and now they're pushed to um, you know, accelerate uh, going digital. And some of those agenda items had to be moved up because they needed to be addressed much more quickly. So we're we're definitely in this digital world and uh, we spoke about hybrid earlier and this digitization journey that all these firms have been on have definitely sort of given more of a life to hybrid because for a while it seemed like it, it was dying on the dying end. Um, that's definitely not the case anymore. So in terms of digitization, um, what are some of um, the really interesting deployments that the two of you are seeing. And so when I think about this, I think about things like gamification, right? Firms coming up with more inventive ways to get information from clients in a way where clients are actually willing to give it. They're willing to be a part of the process more willingly. Um, usually um, when I was in the industry, I would have like this stack of document documents for client meetings and they would look at it and there would be a sigh because they knew that for the next hour, we were going to be sitting down and just going through paperwork, which I I'm sure there's some folks out there that enjoy paperwork. Um, I am not one of them. Um, and most of our clients weren't either. But we're seeing concepts like gamification get introduced, right? Uh, for instance, around risk questionnaires, um, I've, I believe that there's a few firms out there who are uh, trying to figure out a more effective way to gather intel on risk or really assess a client's true risk profile. Because right now, um, the way it's set up is that there's just like 10 questions, they answer them, it's very uh, prescriptive, there isn't much customization in it. Um, they, they sort of just have to um, meet their regulatory obligation, really, and that requires them to ask these 10 questions of their clients. Um, so I'll stop talking and let you two uh, dive into, you know, this very fascinating area of gamification and uh, just a new digital world that we're seeing. Uh, so I think it's worth it's worth saying it we have seen some adoption. I think it could be used so much more. You're absolutely right. Risk profiling is a really good example. Um, but the reason it's a good example is actually traditional risk profiling. If you just ask someone, would you be happy to lose 10% of your assets? Well, 
The answer to that for everyone is no, really. Um, you know, and then it progresses to which graph do you think is better? And they both end up in the same place. One dips in the middle, one goes up and then down again. You know, those sort of things are pretty dry. You also get really variable results from them. You get a theme, but actually you also get lots of variances and you think, okay, there's some discrepancies between how someone's answered these questions. So gamification is a really good way of actually assessing someone's risk. You can make them play a game of cards and put money at risk and you could make them do games that require them to put different pots of money in different places. So it it does assess your real risk to loss um, there are other things like capacity for loss that can also be included in these games so it's a good way of doing it what you have to be careful of is you don't make it just so much of a game that people don't take it seriously and just you know you, you lose the track so it's a really good example of gamification what is also really important I think is when we saw the very first type of online website engagement with clients or even mobile phone engagement with clients, it was really quite dry. It was almost like, I'm just going to reproduce the process I've got, but I'm going to do it online. And I think we've seen a couple of firms where they've launched a mobile app, where they've actually employed gamers to design it. And what you get is something a lot more dynamic. You'll get 3D visualization of the world and rolling and zooming into where your assets are. And it, it's a different client experience that keeps you interested. And I think that is quite key. The other, and this sounds a bit pathetic, but whizzy bangs and noises, it draws your attention to stuff. And, and Investments don't have to be dry. And I think this is quite a key point, you know, and we'll come on to next gen in a moment, but it's also really good to engage the younger generation in in understanding money and managing their stuff. I never did it when I was young, but with gamification, you can make it really interesting. And I think that is something quite powerful that we're not really using enough of yet, but I can see it becoming much more of a thing. And education as well, in similar vein to that. Al, have you got something you want to add there? Quite right, Luke. The standard that's <laughs> that standard risk questionnaire when like say when you open an app that gives you the you know, where you're taking those scores and will give you a risk appetite from one to ten. I think in this day and age, certainly around wealth management, people are probably understanding how to make sure that they can get the, you know, the most aggressive portfolio or play that system. But one of the things that, or, or perhaps two, two, two things around gamification where it can potentially enable is actually that kind of conversation with the next generation and, and things like financial literacy. So um, as the, there's probably, I'd probably give a little bit of context actually, just sort of pull through a couple of stats. So right, if I pull the thread on that in the UK, there's, there's over 80% of household wealth Right, it's held by the over 45s, and 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 over the next 30 years, right, this is set to be tran transferred across the generations as either inheritance or gifts, right, 
um, various studies have, um, have been conducted concerning the amount of wealth involved. And we've got estimates of circa 5.5 trillion globally over the next 30 years and 327 billion specifically in the next decade alone to get to, to move across to 300,000 younger people in the UK. So there is an unprecedented amount of wealth moving from the baby boomer generation uh, across the millennials. And, and it poses a question, you know, so when we think about how we can engage that generation, um, you know, how well the younger generation of beneficiaries are prepared for and indeed educated about the large sums of money that they're ultimately going to inherit. So therefore, get, uh, certainly my sense is that gamification, you know, in the right ways can enable that financial literacy, right, and break down those barriers uh, across wealth management, you know, that you might see like lack of motivation, insufficient knowledge, fear of mistakes when it comes to investing. Um, and then the other sort of final point that's worth calling out is that gamification or, or the concept of a game or a mechanic can actually be a really good mechanism for collecting key and critical data, which can then sort of feed into, you know, some of the, you know, the interesting AI or analytical tools, you know, solutions like make sure you got the next best actions or you're nudging the client in the right way. Um, and, the, you know, certainly those are key topics to, to, to potentially sort of focus on for the industry. That That's great. And I don't think you'll have too many disagreements on any of those points. Uh, they they certainly ring true for me. And this has been a fantastic chat. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you both for being here. Um, before we wrap up, do either of you have any final thoughts that you would like to share? Uh, not really. I mean, I think there are similarities the world over. Um, and I'm very pleased you asked us to come and share with you today, Libna. So thank you very much echo that thank you so much enjoyed the conversation perfect well again uh, very insightful i've greatly enjoyed chatting with both of you and thank you Bye.